just go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Lord, this, you said, would be the place for the downcast soul. A place to come for help. A place to come for mercy. And a place to come for hope. And we get the help and the hope and the mercy, and we're so thankful because uh, we are reminded in Jesus Christ that while there is a, a bit of a sting, that death does not have this, the final word. And so we pray for each of the people we talked about just now and others in this room who are struggling. And they're maybe in a deep place, a deep pit. And they maybe need great grace and mercy today. Maybe their need's not known. But Lord, whatever situation we find ourselves in, we, we are asking for uh, this to indeed be a place where you bind up the brokenhearted, a place where you uh, help those that are grieving to grieve well, uh, but not without hope, a place where we are reminded that there is a risen Savior who has power over death and hell forever, and that risen Savior extends grace and love to us and draws us into the heart of his Father. And there, there is hope and there is help. So we praise you for that. Lord, we pray for um, a, like a sense of your presence in this place today. You would come and minister. You would come and lift heart and eyes to Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So with that said, my friends, uh, we do want to turn to Christ from whom we get our help. And so if you would uh, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we are going to continue with our study of the book of 2 Corinthians. Our passage today is seven verses, and in seven verses, Paul is just going to, almost in rapid-fire succession, he is going to give us time and time and time again reasons why we should forgive one another when there's trouble and what that forgiveness looks like within the church. And so our heart is to turn there and learn from it, and uh, we'll do just that. So with all that said, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, we'll read these seven verses together. Here we go. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And so, Father, we've prayed for help and mercy. Now we pray for understanding would you open our eyes and help us learn from your word today in, in Jesus' name, amen. So when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, everything changes. And I think sometimes when we put that out there, especially for younger people, it's, it's hard to imagine how everything changes. You know, you're the same person, you have the same blood, you have the same reality of relationships around you. So really, how does everything change when we come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ? One of the ways that everything changes is in this area of forgiveness. That within the context of the, the body of believers, we have a true and real forgiveness. The world we live in does not value forgiveness 
and would say that it's actually unwise. We live in a world of grudge holders. We live in a world of make them pay. We live in a world of arm's length. There's an old Scot, I'm Scottish, and I wear that moniker very proudly. I'm Scottish, McDonald, McDonald. And so an old Scottish proverb is this, forgive your enemy, but remember his name. (laughs) And that's how we operate in the world. We operate in the world with a sense of, yeah, okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll be civil to you. I'll move on. I'll, I'll bring you back into some sort of... But you know what? There's a mark somewhere in the book I've got, and I'm watching you, brother. I'm watching what's going on in your world, right? And within the context of the people of God, forgiveness is real and true, and it's totally unlike the world. Forgiveness focuses on a hopeful future... Grudge-holding focuses on a painful past. Forgiveness focuses on love. Grudge-holding focuses on rights. And so in this passage today, Paul is saying, we've got to forgive one another. Guys, when we don't forgive, there are some, nat- there are some, some ugly byproducts that come into the, uh, the people of God. And by the way, the principles for forgiveness that we're going to look at today are universal. So we'll talk about how it relates specifically to the, to the church, to the family, to us. But there are, there are definitely universal principles that are going to help you in your marriage, going to help you in the, the people you work with, uh, in relationships with them, going to help you with neighbors, going to help you with self, and they're definitely going to help us with the people of God. But guys, when we will not forgive, it puts, it puts me, if I'm unwilling to forgive, it puts me in a jail cell. So I hold the grudge. I am upset. I see the person at a distance. I am transferred to an emotional place of difficulty. And so here I am in my own cell, and it punish, I'm punishing myself. And then naturally, the next step, I'm unforgiving, and the natural next step is bitterness. I begin to be bitter towards the one who I think has wronged me. And the next step after that is that uh, I begin to have broken relationships. Because here's what happened. People come to me, and I start talking to the people closest to me about the other people who have hurt me. They, they aren't what I want them to be. They aren't what I hope they would be. They have inflicted pain upon me. And so now I have an inner circle of people that are coming to me and all they're hearing coming from my mouth is I'm upset, I'm not happy, I'm angry, and I'm bitter towards someone. And you know what that does? If, it, if it's left unattended, the natural next step of that is I start having less and less people close to me who want to be and stay close to me. Because I'm constantly talking about how somebody else has hurt me. And so bitterness isolates. And so here we are as I get older and as I fester in these these unforgiving ways that are so natural to me as an individual, as I continue down that road, my world, my relational world shrinks smaller and smaller and smaller because I've been vindictive, vengeful, and upset with the people around me. And so unforgiveness has, has this progression that is ugly in our lives. And what happens is we get to, into our 40s and we get into our 50s and we look around and we start asking, why am I so isolated? Why, why am I relational world getting so small? Why are people seemingly, why are human relationships getting harder at this moment? And for me, and in our ta- text today, we're learning one of the issues we have to check on, I'm not saying this is always the problem, but one of the issues we have to check on is, am I Judgmental, unforgiving, angry, bitter, and talking about it. Coming to the point where the people closest to us are starting to go, oh man, I don't know. It's been hard. Now, again, forgiveness is to be offered. And in our our passage today, we're going to look at, well, what is the real nature of uh, of forgiveness. What is that all about? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, verses 5 through 11. Each verse individually holds another reason why we ought to forgive. All right? And we're going to start with verse 5. First reason we ought to forgive is this, because in life and what God's doing in this world, it's not about you. 
God is building his church. He is doing a great work. He is, he is extolling and exalting his own name in the world, and he wants eyes to be lifted up from the trouble of this life and to be focused on him and what he's doing. And when I won't forgive, I make it about me. Look at verse 5. Now, if, if anyone has caused pain, note what Paul does right off the bat. He uses the word anyone. He does not really name names. He doesn't name names, okay? So if anyone has caused pain. Now let me tell you the story real quick of what's going on. Paul has planted a church in Corinth, and he was with them for 18 months. So he operated with them. He had potlucks with them. He saw them in the streets. He met with them for Sunday for worship. And there's this this little growing body of believers in Corinth, and it's fantastic and beautiful. But now, Paul has left, and he is elsewhere, and he is writing them letters to make sure that what happened in the, what, what's happening in the little church plant, that it continues to grow in a healthy way. Well, there's a specific person who has opposed Paul. We looked at this last week. He has basically said Paul must be immoral because the blessing of God is not on him. And so Paul's doing the wrong thing morally when no one's looking. He has said to the the little church body there, because again, he's present in the church body, he's saying Paul Paul is motivated by selfish interests because, you know, he's going around planting all these churches and these churches are giving him money. So it's all about the money for Paul. He's saying to them that uh, Paul cannot be trusted and that he's a false teacher. And so Paul answers those issues, but here's the thing, that minority rebel leader is still in the church. And so now Paul has written about him publicly without naming his name, and he actually was there in Corinth, and he had a face-to-face disagreement with him in front of the whole church. And there's this real tension, and there's trouble within the church. It's like, there's, like that was a big deal for this church. And so this, this guy is trying to get power in the church and saying, forget Paul, he's immoral, he wants money, he's a false teacher, follow me. And Paul has said, number one, let's address this in writing, and now those of you who are strong in Christ, you need to confront this guy, and you need to, to get his sin out of the center of the church. Get it out to the periphery, and in fact, he says, withhold relationship and move him to the margins. Can I just tell you something? Within the context of the body of Christ, we are called in love to help each other understand what the scriptures say. And so if there is areas in our life where we are in sin, where we are willfully choosing to turn away from the authority of God's word, it is incumbent on us as a church to confront one another in love. And Paul was saying, this person who is creating divisions in the church, we need to confront him. We need to, listen, when we say this, we need to judge him. The church needs to have enough judgment to recognize where the scriptures teach us to walk in accordance and in obedience with Jesus Christ. And we can't sit back as, again, the modern world around us would say, you know, in the church, live and let live. Let people do whatever they want, whatever they want. As long as they're there on Sunday, they're expressing some sense of genuineness and kindness. And just just let it go. And Paul is saying, well, actually, we do need to confront when anyone diverts from what God's word has to say. And so, uh, even while it's not about you, it's not about us to redefine the scripture either. We can't just sort of live and let live, right? We've got we to come to the place where we say, what do the scriptures teach us about a right relationship and obedience uh, to the Lord? And so, God is doing this work. He's calling us together. And, and in it not being about you, the, the implication here is uh, the people, again, in this, this context of the, the local church, there were some people who were kind of of the Paul party. They were Paul loyalists. We can find out about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Some were saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of this person, and I'm of Timothy, and, and, and they were loyal to certain people. The people who were loyal to Paul 
We're saying, hey, this person created a problem, created great pain in our church. We lost sleep about it. We, we were upset about it, and we can't just let it go, right? And so in essence, they were saying, in loyalty to you, Paul, even though this person has repented of their sin, we're still holding a grudge. We'll st- we'll, we are still holding him at arm's length. And so uh, it appears that Paul's party is just unwilling to, to give up on this, and they're continuing to punish this person. Paul had instructed the church to confront the sin. The offender has repented. And now Paul goes to great lengths and says, bring this person back into relationship. Bring them back into relationship. Again, now we're at uh, verse 5. If anyone has caused you pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Can I just encourage you? If you're a mom or a dad and you've had to confront sin in the life of your child, and uh, all of the kids were present when you confronted the sin, it's really important that the, the child that you confront, that you go back to the others and remind them that this has been dealt with now. We're past it. We're over it. We're not holding grudges. If you're at work and you go off on someone, Or if you're in a situation where over coffee or lunch, you talk so negatively about someone else who has truly inflicted pain upon you, it is incumbent upon you to deal with the situation and then in love, go back to everyone that you've spoken negatively and make sure that that person knows we're good now. We have dealt with the situation. That's why it is so important to do like Paul does here in verse 5, if anyone has caused you pain. He doesn't name names. Uh, Do you? Do you name names when it hurts? Cry out and point fingers? Because uh, Paul said, look, if we're going to have unity within the body, we're going to have to do a better job of not naming it. Everyone in the church knew exactly who he meant, and yet he would not call him by name. If anyone... And so we need to have that same heart because you know what? It's not about you. It's not about Paul. So here's what was happening. Again, in loyalty to Paul, his party, his people were saying, don't worry, Paul, we're going to still make him pay beyond what uh, the whole church has made him pay. And here's a reminder that in Psalm 51, David was really good about saying, hey, this, this sin, he could, remember David, he sinned with Bathsheba and then he put her husband, Uriah, to death. This is not good. I mean, none of that is okay. The, the sexual sin is not okay, and certainly the physical sin, putting someone to death, not okay. In Psalm 51, David writes that, you know what, as, as bad as that was, and it was bad, that sin is bad, and it was publicly known, As bad as that is, uh, David puts pen to paper and says, in comparison to how I have stormed the gates of heaven, the, the the sin against people is much less than the sin that I have sinned against heaven. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. He's saying, look, the the sin in the church, it wasn't so much about the human relationships. It was about that person being in, in opposition to Christ Jesus. And so that sin, the sin before God, was greater than the sin that we hurt each other with. And Paul is saying, look, it's not about me. In fact, he goes the next step. He says, if you want to do something in loyalty to me, here's what I'm asking you to do. In loyalty to me, choose to not hold it against this person who attacked me publicly and who, who made life difficult in the church. If you want to do something for me, do you ever do that? You were wronged. It hurt. A great example would be in your own home. Kids see that you are in an argument maybe with your spouse and in some sort of loyalty to you because they feel you have been mistreated, they want to treat the spouse wrongly. And you take that child aside and you say, oh, listen, listen, if you want to do me a favor, let it go. Because this isn't about me. I don't want this relationship to be broken 
and then for you to bring the brokenness back to the, the other one as well. If you want to do me a favor, do the opposite of what you're thinking there because in the context of the people of God, everything is new. We forgive one another. And in this place, we are forgivers. And so God is at work building his church and uh, Paul reminds them that it's not about him. Isn't this exactly what Christ did for us? Letting his own reputation go? Didn't he take on him the, the form of a human? Didn't he take on him the form of a servant? Didn't he go to the cross on your behalf so that uh, accusations against you could be put to rest? And while the evil one brings accusations against you in the throne room of heaven, according to the Old Testament, doesn't Jesus stand as your peacemaker? Doesn't he stand as your defending attorney? Hasn't he made the case before God himself that you should be treated aright and with love? And my friends, if you have been treated thusly, and if we have been treated thusly, that's how we treat one another as well. Reasons to forgive because it's not about you. Secondly, because the sinner has suffered enough. Enough is enough. The sinner has suffered enough. Verse 6 says it like this. For such a one, he's still not naming the name. Again, everyone knows it, but he's still not naming the name. Again, we, we need to get better at not naming the name. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. And again, here is the concept. There is some sinful act in the church, and a group of people goes to the one who has sinned to draw them back in and teach them the ways of Scripture. And in this case, that goal was met. So the person repented, turned from the sin, and recommitted or rededicated himself to the ways of the Lord. And so this is a, a formal process called church discipline. And it's not foreign to the New Testament. All through, almost every letter Paul writes to a church, he writes about needing to confront inappropriate behavior for the goodness and the glory of the church's reputation in the world. And so he wrote in Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, brothers, notice the word there, warm, love, okay? Brothers, if anyone... He uses the word anyone again, rather than name and names. If anyone is caught in any transgression, Paul says to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's the goal of church discipline. If you're like me, you feel like, like in your flesh, you're really good at going around and judging people in this respect, pointing out sin. Well, there's sin, and there's sin, and there's more sin, and there's, there's a shortcoming, and there's a problem. We can be really good at that, right? But, but Paul is saying, okay, that's one thing, and sin should be exposed, but the point of pointing, pointing out sin is not to draw people away from the center. It's not to push them out. It's to draw them back to the center of what God is doing. It's to draw them into the, the church body. It's to show them that there's love. So you who are spiritual should point it out for the purpose of drawing them back in and showing love. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 14 and 15 say that the way that we should uh, deal with an erring brother, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. Say, go to the one who is sinning. Why? Because you want to win his heart. If he listens to you, Matthew 18 says, you've won your brother. So the purpose of church discipline is winning the heart of the erring person. And that's what we want to be about. We want to be about exposing issues, not for the purpose of, of creating lists of what sin is done, not for the purpose of anything other than to, to restore them, to teach them, and to expose them to what the Word of God says so clearly. 
If you're like me, you struggle with that sometimes because in the midst of somebody who is sinning, you, you might be brought to the point where you tell yourself some things that are not true. Here's some things that are not true that I tell myself about forgiveness. Um, the, for, the, the sinner, I don't think they paid enough yet. It seems like what they did hurt that much and it seems like they're getting off scot-free by only having to pay that much. And so what I'm going to do is make up the difference in terms of the erring brother. You ever do that? Spouses, you ever do that? They haven't paid enough yet. And when I am satisfied that they have paid enough, when I have added to the penalty of what they may incur before God and helped God put this sinner through the paces, then I will be satisfied and I will let up, right? But we come back to Jesus Christ and we see that, that in Christ Jesus, that's where sins are forgiven. Here's another thing I do when I see, uh, when I'm uh, uh, around situations where there's sin. I do not think that their, their apology is sincere enough for me. Well, they may have said that they were sorry, but honestly, they're, they're, we're going to need some weeks, and because this sin is X severe, and, and so we're going to need some weeks and months to make sure that they are as sincere as their sin was. And you aren't called to judge that, and neither am I. We, we aren't called to judge the sincerity of their Apology. In fact, uh, in the New Testament, we're called to forgive 70 times 7. And what does that mean? That does not mean sin number 491, we can start dropping the hammer, right? If that were the case, Nikki and I have various kinds of things going on in our relationship. If, if Nikki at sin 491 felt like she could now hold me accountable for these sins and hold a grudge and make me pay, we'd have trouble because I passed sin 491 many, many years ago. 70 times 7 means you don't keep track. You, there's no number on a page someplace that you're watching. You come into the place where you're developing this heart of God that says, okay, God is, God is satisfied. I am not in the place of God. If God is satisfied, I receive them back. I will let God determine how sincere their apology is. I will let God determine that they have paid enough. And then we say things like this. Um, I am not ready to forgive yet. You ever said that? Yeah, I know, I know we're called to do that. If you, if you look here at 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, do you see the word that controls this entire paragraph? It's the first word. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, now. Now. Forgive now. Can I just remind you, forgiveness is not an emotion that you're going to feel someday. It's not. Forgiveness is a change in mind. We hear that God remembers our sin no more. Can I remind you that does not mean that he, he has divine amnesia and cannot suddenly come up with, oh, have they ever sinned? He, he knows all of your sin and my sin. And yes, it's buried in the ocean. And yes, it's separated as far as the east is from the west. But God knows our sin. Here's what we have from God, a promise that he will remember it or hold it against us no more. And so if you're in relationship with something, someone and, and your heart is broken and it's heavy and you get around them and you're remembering the sin that they, uh, that they perpetuated against you, yeah, welcome to the club. That's where we're all at. No one forgives and truly forgets. But here's what we can do. Forgive and have a change of mind and a change of will where we decide to no longer hold it against them any longer and we decide to reconnect them and draw them into a warm relationship with us, forgiving them for the sake of Christ Jesus. That's what forgiveness is all about. And so the sinner, he suffered enough and it's time to bring, them, bring him back into relationship within the church. So that's it. The suffering's over. It's time for reconciliation. It's time for forgiveness. And so let's commit 
to not try to punish the sinner on God's behalf. We're not punishing the sinner because God hasn't done it enough yet, right? We're thinking of the great debt that we owe God. In the New Testament, the, the illustration, the story and the parables of the, uh, the servants that owe a great debt, remember that? There's a servant who owes a sizable, huge debt to a master. And the master calls the servant in and says, you, you owe me a big debt. And the servant says, well, yeah, how much is that again? And, and in essence, the, the number is, is impossible to, to name. And it's basically a billion dollars. We owe God, based on what we have done and how we have attacked his holy character, we owe him a billion dollars, and you're you and I'm me. Look in your bank account. It's not that you owe him a billion dollars and you happen to be Bill Gates, right? No. You, you make your whatever, not that much, and you have no way of paying it. And the, the master, loving and caring, sees you have no way to pay for that sin debt, sends his son to pay the sin debt on your behalf with grace and love, and says, I forgive the debt. Now, You're out on the street the next day. And humanly speaking, we hurt each other and we harm each other from time to time. But compared to the billion dollars we owe the master, we hurt each other 50 bucks at a time. And so there is pain. 50 bucks here. Some of you have had a really, really hard go of it. And you've got somebody that owes you 100 bucks. Some of you have lived a very, very painful life life. And there's somebody out there that owes you 5,000 bucks. It hurts deeply. But you remember a few weeks ago when Gary said, when we start with God, then we bring the comfort to others. And when we start with God and forgiveness and we see your whole life has been transformed by the fact that the God of gods, the King of kings, has forgiven a billion dollars, Everything has changed. It's like you've inherited that. And we come upon this very difficult situation where we truly have been hurt by somebody and it's five grand. And we have to be in a situation where we go, yes, it hurt, it's been painful, but compared to what God has forgiven me and because God has forgiven me, truly, I have the ability, I have the motivation, I have the very command to forgive my brother or sister as well. 5,000 bucks compared to a billion, right? The sinner has suffered enough. Thirdly, because uh, forgiveness brings gladness. You know, within the context of the local church, uh, we have the ability to multiply joy and sorrow. This life is, is sorrowful and painful in itself, and we all make many mistakes. If we kept track of the sins and made each other pay, we would be a place of great dissatisfaction. But in the congregation of the Lord, we are called to unity, to warmth, to love. Look look now at verse 7. So you should rather than to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So, So... We're called to show forgiveness. While the sinner was forgiven by God and repented, Paul's party was still making him pay. And what is addressed here is this needless relational coldness that is directed at the one, even though he's been forgiven by God, somehow I'm not yet ready to draw him in. We're called to forgive. That means a decision, a conscious decision of the will to no longer hold it against him. And that word comfort, you remember again, a couple weeks ago, Gary helped us understand what that word means. Comfort is this concept that, that life is a battlefield. And out in the battlefield, there's difficulty and problems and life and death situations. And we have Christian brothers and, we have brothers and sisters that are down for the count. Comfort, the concept of comfort is we are a portable fortress. And so we bring this portable fortress alongside someone who is down on the battlefield for the purpose of lifting them up, for the purpose of restoring them, for the purpose of encouraging them. Do you do that? But my tendency would be to bring the portable fortress out to the person down on the battlefield and say, hey man, 
you shouldn't have been there. That was a lousy place to set up camp. I know, I see you're bleeding. I'll help you in a minute here. But, but uh, you really made a big mistake. Do you admit that you made a big mistake? And the person's down for the count. And the concept is that we are not there to make them pay further. We have a portable fortress to go out to our downed brother or sister to lift them up. Because what would happen if, listen, they have gone through the paces. They have gone through church discipline. They have recognized their sin. They have admitted they were in the wrong. They have now come back into fellowship. And how are they being treated when they get here? Arm's length. I'm loyal to Paul. I, haven't, I don't think you've paid enough. And so I'm not, I'm not ready to restore you. I'm not ready to talk to you. So I'm going to avoid you a little bit. I'm going to make you pay just a little bit further until I'm satisfied. Or in our marriages. I'm going to make you pay just a little bit more until I'm satisfied that you have hurt in the same way that I'm hurting. Paul's saying when that takes place, you see there in verse 7 what happens? He may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So here he is. He has done everything that God's called him to. He's done everything that the church has called him to. And yet he has no way to come back into relationship. That person has no way to come home. Overwhelmed by excessive sorrow is a picture of huge tidal waves drawing in. And the concept here is that the the huge tidal waves would overwhelm them, but it would draw them out into the sea to be drowned. So excessive sorrow is this picture of we have the opportunity to draw him back into the safe place of the family, but he's on the outskirts, and on the outskirts the waves are strong and pulling him out to sea, and we in essence are letting him go by disinterest and by adding to the forgiveness process. What are you doing with your portable fortress? Coming into relationship with people to draw them back, to draw them in and love? Friends, the forgiveness Christ has brought you brings gladness. I want you to think about that. At some point in your life, you were at a place where you realized God has forgiven you of your sin. And so what you are called to do is bring that heart of joy to the people around you. God has forgiven you of your sin. The Bible says that when a sinner repents, there's, a, there's gladness, there's party, there is, there's celebration in heaven. And the same ought to be true here. When someone repents, we ought not to hold them at our arm's length. We ought not to try to make them pay further. We ought not to try to correct God's shortcomings when it comes to correcting sin. We should be celebrating. We should be bringing great gladness to this person and, and be the, uh, the ambassadors of Christ in love and drawing them back into relationship because forgiveness brings gladness. Number four, because forgiveness shows love. Another reason to forgive. Guys, this, in this place, everything is new. And one of the things we do in this place is we show love in a world that does not show love. We show love and kindness. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The picture is this. Here we've had this this concept of like church discipline and, and everybody knows who has been disciplined and that person is sort of on the outs and they have been confronted and now they're being they have to decide what they're going to do, and they have decided they, they want to repent of the sin and come back into relationship. And just like we talked about before, this concept is there had been a public statement about this person's sin, and now there needs to be a public statement that this person has come to repentance. And, and it should be that in the church, there's this statement of grace and love and loving kindness over the one who repents. It's the 99 and the 1, right? And this one that comes, we should be really celebrating. And that brings a sense of strongness to the church. Wouldn't you love to be at a church and in a family where your kids see that when they are confronted, they are asked to consider who they are in Christ or they can to put the sin off. And when they put the sin off, they are shown great love and they are shown great kindness. 
They aren't called to pay for it anymore in themselves. And within the church to see that the person who, who erred isn't punished for the rest of their life. Somebody brings a portable fortress out to them and helps them. And that means when your child, when I, when a young believer, when we fail in the future, you know what we're going to get from the church? Somebody who comes out with their portable fortress to help us, to bring aid to us, to bring food to us, to, to bring oxygen to us, to bring medical care to us, to lift us up because the whole purpose of forgiveness and purpose of the, the again, church discipline is to restore and encourage. Forgiveness shows love. A fifth reason to forgive, because forgiveness reveals obedience. I think sometimes obedience gets a bad rap. We think, well, obedience is like the fifth good reason to obey, to, to walk with God, but really we should love him, we should want to, we should have this living, the spirit in us should get us to, to, to the point where we just naturally behave this way. But obedience is one of the highest motivations that there can be. Because again, I think in my heart, the person hasn't paid enough, I, I'm not ready, and yet I go back to the word of God, and the word of God says, okay, but I am satisfied, and I have drawn them in, and it's time for you to forgive. And I compare my heart, want to hold a grudge, to God's heart, he's forgiven them. And I have to bring my heart to the place where it submits because again, forgiveness is a decision of the will. Duty is a high motivation. It's a test of allegiance. It's asking, knowing how God has treated you, are you willing to come under and treat others in the same way? We say, I do not want to. We say, I'm not ready. We say, I don't think he deserves it. But we bow our will to God's will to draw the person in. And Jesus said these words, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Boy, there's so much glory for God in it when we obey him. Corey Ten Boom, you know, was a, a Jew who lived in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And she was mistreated. Uh, her sister died in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And so after uh, the war... She was out and she was delivering messages all around the world, messages from Scripture. And this one time, she was delivering a message that was all about the forgiveness of God. Now here in Ravensbrook, she had met the most horrible indignities. Her sister had passed away. And while she was delivering a message of forgiveness, she looked out and saw one of the guards, in fact, one of the worst perpetrators from Ravensbrook. There he was in the audience as she was talking about forgiveness. He came up to her afterwards and said, Thank you for your fine message. How wonderful it is to know that all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. That's the term that Corey had used about forgiveness. She had spoken so easily of God's forgiveness. But here was a man whom she despised and condemned with every fiber of her being. She couldn't take his hand. She couldn't extend forgiveness to this Nazi oppressor. She realized that this man didn't remember her. How could he? Among the thousands that he had mistreated. You mentioned Ravensbrook, the man continued, his hand still extended. I was a guard there. I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true. But since then, I've come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It's been hard for me to forgive myself for all the cruel things I did. But I know that God has forgiven me. And please, if you would, I would like to hear from your lips that God has forgiven me. And Corey recorded in her book, I stood there, I whose sins had again and again been forgiven, and I could not forgive. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. And so woodenly and mechanically, I 
thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Is there one like that in your life? So painful was the situation. And yet you know that as a matter of obedience to Christ Jesus, it's time to forgive. We forgive out of obedience. You know, it's easy to forgive in the area of pointing out the sin. But it's so difficult to obey in the area of forgiving the sinner. And that's what God's called us to. Number six, because forgiveness produces unity. You know, God wants unity within his church. We've already talked about that. And in Matthew chapter six, if you recall, uh, Jesus has taught his disciples how to pray. And in teaching his disciples how to pray, he, it's almost like he said, okay, your kingdom come as, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. And then he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? And so we're asking forgiveness. And then at the end of the Lord's prayer, it's like he stops and goes back to his disciples and says, you know, the, the way that you forgive other people, that's the way that God's going to forgive you. You know that, right? Let's turn that on its head so we can understand it. The, the, the implication is this. If you've been forgiven, if you've truly been forgiven your sins by a holy God, a billion dollars, you've been forgiven, then you will certainly forgive those who have wronged you. That's the natural implication. And so forgiveness produces unity there. Verse 10 says it like this. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive indeed. Now listen. That what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And it's almost as if he has taken this hardship and this difficulty and things hurt or uh, put against him. And he has, he has come to the point where he's like, you know, I was alone with, with Jesus. Thinking about the pain. Thinking about what I've lost based on the pain thinking about the sin perpetrated or, or uh, accomplished against me. I've been thinking about that in the very presence of Christ. And in the presence of Christ, I came to this conclusion. All I can do is do for that person what Christ has done for me. Forgive. You and I, we, we need to really work at living every moment in the presence of Christ. Because in the presence of Christ, we are on equal ground. And Forgiveness produces unity. You know God wants unity in the church. And that brings us to our last point, that because for, uh, we forgive because forgiveness defeats Satan. You know, Christ has forgiven, or excuse me, Christ has defeated Satan. So all of, um, all of the work against Satan is done, and yet we can be a place where that is confirmed and there's an exclamation point put on the end. In other words, we can act in accordance with forgiveness here in this place, holding no grudges and drawing people back into relationship because everything has changed and we are completely new in Christ. And so Satan's schemes would be to say, you know what we need to do? People of the church are, are uh, they're, they're, they're hypocrites and they're difficult. And so we come here on Sundays and we hear the word and then we move on with our life. But our real friends are the ones we have, you know, we connect with uh, relationally. They're, the real friends are the ones that we have these things in common with. We, we, we like the same TV shows. We work at the same place. We have the same political views. And we wind up then saying that's what unity is, is just the friendship thing. Can I just tell you that, that unity that's built on politics is, is ridiculous? Unity that's primarily centered on what TV show you have in common, or if you're a, a runner, I'm a runner. But, but if I build my life on unity with, with runners, if that's what it's about, it's, it's going to fall apart. But when we hold Christ together, then the unity is real and rich. And in this place, there's a lot of different people, like a lot of different TV shows, and have a lot of different political positions, and have a lot of different interests. But the thing that holds us together is the unity that comes from Christ himself. 
And so what happens is Satan is defeated when we can come together and say, no, I'm not going to allow this, this hurt, this difficulty, this past sin to live. I'm, it's not going to live here. We're going to be one despite the fact that, that hard things have happened in our past. And so God, God wants us, he intends for us to have unity that's built on that. And so we close saying this, my friends, forgiveness brings incredible benefits. It's not about you. Never was. It's about what God's doing in this world. The sinner has really suffered enough, and it's not up to you or me to make him pay more. Forgiveness brings gladness. And if you've been forgiven, then you have a joy overflowing, and you have a joy to flow with, or a, a joy to share with other sinners. Because forgiveness shows great love. And it's time to announce our love for one another. Because forgiveness reveals obedience, and that is a high calling and a high motivation. Forgiveness produces unity in this body. And forgiveness is another reminder that as Satan has tried to make troubles and borders and walls within the church, in this place he will have no sway as we devote ourselves to the work and person of Jesus Christ and hold on to him as our source for unity. Forgiveness. It's changed everything. In Christ, we're a new creation. Let's stand and be dismissed. Lord, as we go from this place today, we are thanking you for forgiveness. The ultimate reality is not that we could be a place where we somehow, through human means, construct a place where people like each other, a new sort of social club. The reality is we start and we end with Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. And if we have been forgiven much, then we are joyful and we extend the same forgiveness to the people around us by God's grace. Lord, may your people, may this place be a, a giant billboard in Sheboygan County, a huge lighthouse for ships at sea that draw people into the hope and love they can have that they can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. And may we be your hands and feet loving neighbor, loving friend, loving spouse for your honor and glory. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.